Welcome to another Dragonlance Saga review episode. It is Kirinor Gildember the 11th. My name is Adam. And today I'm going to give you my... It's not really a spoiler review. It's not really a traditional review either. But I am going to give you my review of Leaves from the Inn of the Last Home, edited by Mart Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Of course, I would like to take a moment and thank the members of this YouTube channel and invite you to consider becoming a member by visiting the link in the description below, reminding you that you can always pick up Dragonlance Game materials using my affiliate link, including this book. It is a PDF available through DriveThruRPG or DMs Guild, but the actual PDF that they're selling is missing like a couple pages. It's really weird, like scanning errors or something. So you might want to just run to your local bookstore and see if they happen to have a copy or an old game store or something. All right, now this is just my perception of what this source book is. And because it's not a traditional review, whereas it's not like a seamless narrative, like a novel, I'm just going to sort of be bouncing around throughout the course of this review, talking about different aspects of the book, what I like, maybe what I don't like, what's useful, and really what the purpose of this book is. Like, what is a source book? We'll get into it. All right. So uh, if you have any questions or comments or anything, let me know in the chat and, you know, we'll have a little bit of back and forth. This is a little more open-ended because I don't have like a written narrative to go by. Chris, good luck on your kid's game. I taught my son's <laughs> soccer game when he was a wee lad and uh, it's a pain that took us <laughs> to say the least. All right, this is just a review, Jason. How you doing? Thanks for tuning in. Jeff, what's up? How you doing, man? Gold Moon, how you doing? Good to see you. You love this book. It's one of your favorite to look at. Nice. I enjoy it as well. Um, maybe that's where we'll start with a, a brief conversation about what is this book? Because at the end of the Dragonlance original Dragonlance life cycle, you had the Chronicles trilogy, the Legends trilogy. You had um, uh, the Atlas of the Dragonlance saga. You had uh, Art of the Dragonlance saga. And you had Leaves from the Inn of the Last Home. Then for the gaming materials, you had DL 1 through 16. And then the DLA Dragonlance Adventures book. So that was it for Dragonlance for a little bit before they started doing tales and stuff like that. And ultimately, you have all of that material out there. What's the real benefit of having a source book when DLA Dragonlance Adventures is pretty much the source book? Like for gaming, but it's a source book. And when you look at this source book, there's no actual game mechanics, so it has nothing to do with the gaming aspect. It's just general information about the world, the campaign setting of Dragonlance. And it actually doesn't really go into all of the really interesting aspects of what makes Dragonlance Dragonlance because it doesn't talk about the Orders of High Sorcery at all, which is very strange. You would think there would be at least some sort of passing mention. Now, they bring in some sort of occult ideas like new age slash occult ideas like numerology runes and stuff like that but other than that it's it's a very strangely compiled source book and i have to admit while i have referenced this book an amazing amount of times over the course of producing videos for this channel i've never actually read it and i owned it before this channel as a kid when i was playing second edition D, &D uh i never actually read it cover to cover I've read sections that I wanted to talk about, but I've never actually done the cover-to-cover -cover read. And it is a very interesting cover-to-cover -cover read because you start to really piece together that they cover old ground, 
There's no actual real purpose for this book if you're a huge fan of the setting because you already know all this information and how wildly dated this information is. I mean, really, really dated. And that's, I guess that's personified in more than anything else in the way they present the legends and the histories because they all change throughout the course of the novels being released and future source books and guidebooks being released. So, like, the history of Lord Soth is completely wrong. Um, the history of the Grey Gem is wrong. Uh, the history of the creation of the world is off. Not wrong, just off, because they amend and change it later on. And so all the information isn't exactly accurate. It's not like it's... Uh, uh, evergreen, as they say, you know, meaning it will last for all time and just be a resource you can go back to. And then you look at some of the other aspects of the book, which really kind of bring it into the real world rather than just the fantasy campaign setting. And that would be, in my personal opinion, the inclusion of the music, poetry, and recipes. I, on this channel, have made every single recipe. I have had the vast majority of the songs. I have read every single one of the poems. They are all on this channel that you can just go through and look and watch and see how they turned out. And I can safely say, of the recipes, 95% of them are really not good. <laughs> like, at all. Like, total waste of resources buying the, the ingredients and making it. And some of them are completely inaccurate in their recipe, like, breakdowns. Um, and some of them like completely omit steps that you should be taking. It doesn't talk about quantities in this particular book. So like I made one sort of Kender loaf bread and it was just, um, is that actually, let me make sure that's in this one because, uh, I made this Kender loaf bread and it ended up being a massive amount of bread that we could never possibly eat. And it's just a good thing that I have a bunch of chickens in my backyard because otherwise that would have gone to waste. Um, I'm sort of just jumping through this to, to make sure. You know, some of these were actually pretty good. Fried potatoes are pretty good. The tide me overs were good. Anything with pastry dough is pretty good. I'd never made sausage before until I did the kapuza and kielbasi, the sauerkraut and sausage. I made my own sausage on the video and stuff. So that was really fun. And that was an interesting thing. Okay, so the kinder bread's not actually in this one. <laughs> That's in a different one. Uh, so there's mistakes throughout many of the books when it comes to... Oh, there it is, Kendra Granny Bread. Yeah, they don't tell you how much it makes. You have no idea, and the proportions are way off for the ingredients. So it's very, very strange. Um, the Jetty Fish Wraps I thought were really great. I, I really enjoyed those as the recipe. The Stuffed Shirts, you give me a spinach pie and I'm a happy man. That was great. The Twice Baked Potatoes was great. Um, I liked Flame Flamestrike Soup. I thought that was pretty good. The Bean Pot was good. The cookies were meh. I would adjust them a little bit. Spinach salad was way too much spinach and way too much raw mushrooms. I don't know why anyone would ever eat that. Um, the flatbread was pretty good. The fireball chili, Fizban's fireball chili was great. The dwarf, uh, gully dwarf stew was really good. So there are some great recipes in here. But again, it's Midwestern sensibilities when it comes to the recipes. So the portion size is blown way out. I mean, when you think about just general health uh, in, in uh, eating habits and what is recommended daily uh, to eat, you know, that sort of food pyramid that 
we sort of grew up on in my generation that is wildly out of whack nowadays. Um, the portion size in the Midwest generally is incredibly large compared to either of the coasts. I mean, generally you pare down portion sizes, but in the Midwest, for some reason, they want to stock you up for the winter or something, <laughs> get you some winter fat on your bones so that you can, you know, not freeze to death. But it was crazy. So the cookbook's hit or miss, and it depends on your palate, whether you like that heavy Midwestern food or whether you prefer something lighter or more delicate. They do have a couple recipes to support that um, sensibility, but not many. As for the songs, let's talk about the songs really quick, because again, these are really hit and miss. For example, I had no idea what Kitty Yara's song would look like. Now, I went to church when I was a little kid. I was raised in the Mormon church. I stopped going when I was eight. But one thing that the Mormon church does, and I'm assuming every church that sings hymns, is teach you how to read music. And so I learned how to read music. That doesn't mean I'm great at it. And so looking at the, the sheet music, I have a general idea about how the songs sound, but I couldn't like effectively sing or perform any of them because I'm just not that good. Uh, I don't practice music. It's just not something that's in my wheelhouse normally. And so when I saw Kitty Yara's song, I was like, ooh, this is going to be a cool Kitty Yara's song. And it's going to be all sense, uh, sensual and, and sort of sort of all over the place. And I had this, uh, I paid for this woman to uh, sing it for me. And wow, is it a terrible song. I mean, and it's on the channel. You can look it up. It's just oohs and ahs and uhs. Not good. Like whoever put that song together, whoever wrote that sheet music, I don't know if they were out of their mind, if they were just trying to get this done, or if they actually wanted it to sound like that, but just garbage. And there are some standout songs, like the drinking song, Three Sheets to the Wind, I think is glorious, mainly for the lyrics because it's hilarious. Um, Lord Soth's song, I think, is really, really great. I only did the bassoon version. And that's another thing that you learn about the songs in Leaves from the End of the Last Home is that there are multiple versions of some of the songs, depending on the instrument or depending on the arrangement. So, you know, for example, Goldmoon's song right out of DL1 is a trio in Leaves from the End of the Last Home. So that's one that I've done Goldmoon's song. I produced it. Now I need to produce the trio at some point so I can see what that sounds like. But music, again, is kind of hit or miss. You know, you get something like Huma's song, which is in um, um, Second Generation, I think, the compilation. Um, but anyway, Tracy Hickman wrote it, and it's great. The guy I paid to perform it did an amazing job. But some of the songs in here, not so great. So, again, the music is kind of hit and miss. So... My favorite song is has got to be the, um, the Kender or no the drinking song the Krenish drinking song. I think that's just so much fun. And Goldman's song is great because it's just, you know, it's it's iconic to the beginning of what Dragonlance was. You know, I mean we we had the suggestion of her singing in the Dragons of Autumn Twilight novel. We actually saw the sheet music in DL One Dragons of despair <laughs> i think it was called uh and so you know it's always been a part music and poetry has always been an indelible part of dragonlance i think they stole that from tolkien but in either case it worked and it's great generally 
not everything works really well. The poetry, when it's isolated in the novels where, you know, you're reading the novel and then there's a poem presented and then you continue reading the novel, not so bad. You kind of get this, it's like a, a reprieve from the narrative and you get to explore history generally through the poetry. Abstract, but that's kind of what history is anyway. When you get back-to-back -back poems, unless it's like Robert Frost or Shakespeare or Edgar Allan Poe, it's rough. <laughs> it is rough. Even Jim Morrison did some really good poetry books. But, oh my gosh. I, I like Michael Williams. I like him as a writer. I like him as an individual just talking to him. I had a great time interviewing him. It's also on the channel. But... Reading his poetry back-to-back -back is too much. You're noticing uh, literary patterns in how he writes. And it gets annoying, it gets repetitive, and it's way too much. You just, you have to stop, take a breather, and then come back to it, because it's way too much to handle in one sitting. And I, again, this isn't, this is a source book, so it's not meant to be read cover to cover. You're meant to bounce around and experience different aspects of it. Uh, as far as, like, my favorite poem, I mean, of course, Cantaloupe of the Dragon is great because it gives us a nice background. I don't really like the uh, Tannis' letter slash poem to Kitiara, which is Kitiara of all the days. It's obscure and it's strange and it doesn't really make any logical sense to me. The Song of the Nine Heroes, I really appreciated. How Quiet is the Midnight, Lord Soth's song, I thought was really great. Like Night of the Black Rose, Song of the Ice Reaver was a little weird, but okay. Raceless Farewell was pretty good. The Dwarving Marching Song, I actually really appreciate it. So there are, okay, now that I'm looking at this, there are some that are really enjoyable. But then again, there are some that are just a little bit too much. Like, for example, The Marriage of Riverwind and Goldmoon. All right, it's broken up between Goldmoon's presentation and then a reply by Riverwind in his presentation. And if you're just imagining... These are two people who just got married or they're in the process of getting married and these are like their vows. It makes no sense. It, it doesn't say anything about how, what they feel about the other person or anything like that. It's almost as if they're standing on a stage and just talking about the ills of the world to the audience rather than their marriage, which is what the title of the poem is. And so it just becomes really, really obscure. Just for example... Wars have settled in the north, and dragons ride in the skies. Now is the time for wisdom, say the wise and the nearly wise. Here in the heart of battle, the time to be brave is at hand. Now most things are larger than the promise of woman to man. That's Goldmoon talking to her would-be husband at their wedding. What does that have to do with your love to Riverwind? What are you talking about? I would like be concerned. I'd say, hey, Alistan, can you go check her out? Because I think maybe she has a concussion. Like, I think maybe uh, Nightbringer uh, came down on her head or something, and now she's talking a bunch of nonsense. Like, Verminard must have messed her up in Pax Arcas, because I don't know what the hell she's talking about. She's supposed to be saying how much she loves me, you know, if I was Riverwind. I mean, just crazy stuff. Um, so those are the songs. And then we get into the New Age slash occult stuff with runes and numerology. Um, now, I loved this stuff as a kid. 
And I think it's a lot of fun. Don't believe in any of it, but it is, you know, it's out there with like astrology. It's just whatever. It's fun. Who cares? Don't take it too seriously and things will be fine. Um, not that things wouldn't be fine if you did take it too seriously because it doesn't really matter. But just the point is you can have fun with goofy ideas. They go on a whole presentation at the beginning of each of these two sections about how to do it, but they never give you the measurements in order to do it yourself. Meaning, they tell you, uh, for example, uh, how to set up runes in different ways to read people's life cycles or something, but they never actually tell you which runes are available to use and which runes are appropriate to individuals and what each rune means. <laughs> so you can't actually use it to like do your own runes or do some player's runes in a game. You, you just have to make stuff up, <laughs> which again is kind of what it's all about. But still, it would be nice if they give you some sort of like, like instructional meaning to the runes so then you could then apply it. For example, the Talus card deck, those are tarot cards. And it's just, you know, reading your tarot for your characters. That's indelible to the Dragonlance game, which was brought out, I think it was like DL8 or 9 or something like that, maybe 11. But it's like an integral part of the role-playing game. But they tell you how to read them. They tell you what each card means in, you know, which perspective. So that's useful. In this particular case, completely useless. You can't actually do it, anything with it. And the numerology, it tells you how to bring number or uh, words, uh, names, dates, and stuff down to single numerical reference. But they don't tell you what that means at all. Like what the numbers stand for. You, so if your name is like brought down in numerology to the number two, what does that mean? What does the number two signify so that I can then extrapolate you and your existence through that number? That's the point of numerology. But if you don't present me with the how and wherefore, why are you even talking about it? So again, those sort of new age occult aspects of this book are totally pointless. And really the whole purpose of having them in there is to showcase characters in the Dragonlance world, like the companions, the infellows and stuff, and their sort of journeys that they go on and use those basic ideas of numerology and runology to then extrapolate character traits from them. But again, if you're reading this, you can't use this to inform a character that your player is playing or to help with that. You just have to make shit up. And that's kind of lame because I feel like you could have just given us another page, a total of two extra pages, and filled in all the blanks. And then we could have actually used it in game if we wanted to. So what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, there numerology is is definitely not from Dragonlance. Runeology is definitely not from Dragonlance. But the fact that they imported it into it, and tarot cards are not from Dragonlance, they imported it into the system, and they explain it out, but they don't actually give you the real information. So if you're going to bring something real-world, new-age occult into the fantasy world, at least let us know how to actually apply it to characters in the world not just present characters that it's already been applied to without giving us the how. That's kind of frustrating. Um, okay, so aside from that, let's look at the... Uh, 
let's look at the table of contents so I can sort of rough through here. Lord Gunther's War Journal. It's where he talks about the history of the War Lance, which I think is the best part. Um, notes on dragons, which is completely useless. It doesn't actually give you any real information at all. Dragons on Kryn doesn't give you any information at all. Totally useless. Knights of Salamnia, not bad. Oath and the Measure, not bad. Why they didn't bring in the Orders of High Sorcery in this, I'll have, I have no idea. It seemed like the perfect thing to do because they do talk about herbalism in here, which is great. One of the best parts of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Master Guide is an appendix in the back. They have herbalisms, I'm herbals, herbs, roots, plants, fruits, etc. And their use through the skill of herbalism and how they would then help you. It's a really cool, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but I think it's a very cool addition and adds depth to the game. They did the same thing in here with Raceland's notes that Dalimar found in the Tower of High Sorcery in Planthus, and just reading through them, if you can read, I don't know, do they teach cursive anymore? If you don't know how to write cursive, or if you've ne never been taught how to write cursive, do you know how to read cursive? I don't know. I, I was taught how to do it, so I just assume you would know, but maybe people don't know how to read cursive, so that whole section would be a bust because it's supposed to be in Raceland's hand and it's like just all cursive. And so reading it is, is fun and interesting. There's little notes here and there. But other than that, it's kind of useless because most people don't apply that stuff into it. But I love the, the world building that it implies. I thought that was really great. Maps of pre- and post-war Ancelon and, and the uh, constellations, great. Loved them in this. It gives you the generic legends of a handful of different uh, artifacts and people and events in Dragonlance, which I think is really, really important because that's, I think, the core of what this book is. It's not meant for gaming. It's just meant to give a reader a sense, not a full scope view, but a sense of what Dragonlance is has to offer. And I think it does that pretty well. Now there's a story in here called The Manuscript of Dunstan Van Eyre, which I think is the best part of this entire book. I had never read it before this week. Like I think yesterday I read it. And it's great. It's The whole thing is set up between two aesthetics from um, the Library of Palanthus. Uh, um, <laughs> I can't I remember his name. <laughs> Uh, Astinus Aplanthus tells them to go uh, find a Draconian and a Minotaur uh, and um, basically learn about these species. And they end up learning about elves and they end up learning about dragons and, and all sorts of stuff like that throughout the, their misadventures. And it becomes dangerous and everything's really great. And it's a fun story. You know, so you're learning through an interesting, you know, like a, a short story in Tales one of the Tales books. So that was a lot of fun. And it was a nice reprieve from just the straight presentation of gnomes and kender earlier in the book. Because again, they are presenting the differentiating points of what Dragonlance world is compared to other primaterial worlds in Dungeons and & Dragons. And you can't get more different than the gnomes and kender. They are incredibly different than anything else in any of the other worlds. And so that was really cool. They talk about some of the different artifacts that are native to Kryn, which are very interesting, which I really, really loved and appreciated. Oh, and the gully doors. I mean, I, so here's the thing. 
the way that they present in this book how the different sub-races came about is completely different than if you picked up any of the source books today from 3rd edition or 5th edition. Because even Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman changed the way that they presented the history of the Grey Gem. And so the, the history of the Grey Gem and the sort of demi-races of Kryn has completely evolved and changed away from what it originally was. And so reading these older versions and hearing how, you know, um, in Dwarves of Kryn box set, it talks about how Reorks took dwarves up to um, um, Talada's and he sort of shined his light on them. But in this version, it was humans. And then it was from the humans that became, you know, sort of obsessed with their inventions that he created gnomes. And then gnomes came down, the gnomes split into Kender and dwarves. And so it's a completely different tale than other places that even the original authors have shared their version of the Grey Gem of Gargath. So I think that's kind of interesting to just sort of get a glimpse about what it was originally versus how it is seen today because it is very different and it makes people's jobs like, it's not a real job, it's a hobby, like mine, where I try to distill information to create a singular video to explain a singular idea or topic or character or whatever. It makes that very difficult because it's changed so much. So I'm forced to guess, well, which one? Which one am I going to talk about? So I presented a short video about Magius and then they completely changed Magius in their latest book that just came out this last August. And so I get people coming on making comments saying, that's not what Magius looks like. That's not how Magius acted. And I'm like, well, before August, all the way back to the 1980s, that is how Magius was. So if you're just going from this point forward, then of course it's different because the authors changed it. <laughs> so it makes it very difficult to have any consistency. It's crazy. Yeah, my wife is huge into herbalism and plants and stuff like that. Um, she, I mean, she really gets into it. It's really kind of cool. All right, what else? Um, it talks about how the companions met. It gives you that nice narrative starting from the very beginning with Flint and ending, of course, with them separating for the five years before Dragons of Own Twilight. Um, and that's a fun story. A lot of the content that's in this book is found directly in... Dragonlance Adventures, the source, the actual game book. And DL5 was actually a source book. It wasn't a module. It was a source book of, of Dragonlance World. And so it first presented the, the story of how the companions met in that. And uh, I thought that was really interesting because they did change things just from, in the same era of first edition, they changed how the companions met from the source book to the leaves from the end of the last home. And that's all before second edition ever even came to the light of day. And so they're constantly changing and evolving the entire narrative of everything. And so everyone who like freaks out about how Raceland was introduced to magic um, in, you know, how he got uh, put into a school. Well, Margaret Weiss changed it later on to Antimides, but before that it was Raceland's dad who did it. And that's just straight from this story and from DL5. So I thought that was really interesting. The timeline of Kryn, of course, it presents is very fun, but different. <laughs> and uh, the creation of the world is pretty fun and also has 
differences to how it's perceived nowadays or presented nowadays, I should say. So I think the, the strength of Lee's from the end of the last home is the time capsule aspect of it. You get to get a really strong taste of what Dragonlance was, not what it is. And for people like me who really enjoy old school D&D rather than the newer versions, um, this is bread and butter. This is home. This is a warm cup of coffee under a blanket. You know, just sort of going back to when you were a kid and just laying, staring at the sky or something and imagining like, I'm, okay, I'm going to play Dungeons and Dragons. What kind of character am I going to play? Or I just read Dragons of Modern Twilight. What if I was in that story? What would I have done in those situations? You know, it's, it's just, it's fodder for your imagination and it's a lot of fun to revisit. I would not suggest it to someone who is cutting their teeth on D&D with 5th edition and the way Dragonlance is presented in 5th edition because they don't mesh at all. They are completely different. But if you're able to realize that Dragonlance is a continual evolution and always has been, then I think you might appreciate this a little bit more. All right, so what do you guys have to say about this? Uh, the book is pretty sweet. Yeah, it's fun. You got a crusty copy from eBay years ago. This is my second copy that I was reading, and I got the PDF because I was stupid and gave away my first copy. I shouldn't have. Um, it's not wrong. It was Weiss who said the variations in the history is because of how legends change over years. Yeah, and that's just an excuse, Jeff. <laughs> that's an excuse for not being consistent. <laughs> that's all that is. Spiced potatoes were good. I agree, Ran um, Rianon. Thanks for joining live, by the way. Let's see. Uh, you kind of want to go reread Dragonlance books. Now, you should. They're fun. They're fun to, to revisit. If you remember correctly, they serve spiced potatoes. Yeah. Odic spiced potatoes are great. I mean, they're... Not what I expected, but they're good. Uh, you don't have a copy of this one. It's just a cookbook. No, it's it's more than a cookbook. It's tales and legends and histories and world information without any D&D mechanics involved. So it's just a presentation to what Dragonlance is. See, uh, they have a question in fantasy D&D based of Dragonlance. Um, hey, Braska, uh, you can go ahead and ask it if you have a question. The recipe situation uh, section of a few pages of the book is full of other information. You like Odix and the chili. Let's see. When Sturm protected the dark-haired elven princess, got out of some epic battle, and she rewarded him with a snowflake pendant. Oh, that was um, Alhana Starbreeze and Tarsus. And the potato dwarf and the rat helped race them through the dungeon. <laughs> that was Buffu, the gully dwarf, in Zach Saroth, and that was great. Uh, hey, Skull Cowboy, thanks for tuning in live. How you doing? I'm reading the Chronicles of Narnia. Nice, that's a fun one. Yeah, I enjoyed the Chronicles of Nar Narnia when I was a kid. I missed the good old love, honor, and obey. Numerology is from System of A.E. White. Much of the herb lore is traditional, actually. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, they do present, like, um, recipes and stuff in the herb, but when it comes to herbs in fantasy books, they use fantasy herb names. You know, so not all the herbs are things that are going to be common or even accessible at all because some of it's made up. So don't ever go into that, especially in this book, thinking that it's 100% accurate and you can go to the store and just buy this stuff and make your own because it's you won't be able to. Um, they've resumed teaching cursive. All right. It's time for people who are not taught. Yeah, my son wasn't taught. And I got to ask my daughter because she hasn't brought it up. I don't think she's been taught. 
You like the herbalism section? It feels like Parsaline could have given Raceland an actual blend to help. Yeah, seriously. Uh, yeah. I mean, he gave him a recipe, but apparently it wasn't a very good one. <laughs> and in, in Raceland's notes, he actually has his own version of a, a tea that is supposed to help. So who knows? The recipe of Raceland's tea that I made was pretty good. It was okay, but it wasn't like stinky or anything like that. Like it's always been presented in the books. But very much like um, next week, a sort of a tease for the, vi the lore video that I'm releasing next week. It's about Tachesis and where she lives in the planes of existence. I just thought since Planescape is coming out and they're doing a bunch of Planescape videos, I might as well do one about Dragonlance in Planescape. And so when second edition first came out, they changed Tachesis's home from the Abyss to the Nine Hells, to Baydor. And that's because of the alignment. Tachesis is lawful evil, which same with Bador, the Nine Hells, and the Abyss is chaotic evil, so she wouldn't dwell there. But all of the information that we've ever been given about Tachesis in Legends, Chronicles, and all of the Dragonlance novels is the Abyss. And so it's very interesting to get that cognitive dissonance between the game materials as they're later developed versus the novel information as it's presented because it's diametrically opposed uh, and and you get that a lot with Dragonlance throughout its different iterations and so it's just something where we as fans um good question I'm going to get to that Don in just a second let's put a pin in that it's something that we as fans need to just accept what we like and forget what we don't and just try to make it as close to what we think Dragonlance is as possible so that if you're a DM you're then it, you know, creating a world that's enjoyable and different for the players. And if you're a player, then you feel immersed in the version of Dragonlance that you're comfortable with. So Tachesis and Tiamat in the original idea of Dragonlance were separate. They wanted them to be completely separate because Dragonlance was supposed to be its own thing. They didn't want some sort of meta plot story arc where you know you can go and kill Tiamat to then be like well if Tiamat was killed then Tachesis is dead and she can't have a war of the lands so in order to avoid that they said they're completely different Bahamut and Paladine different Tiamat and Tachesis different what Spelljammer did was unify the different Dungeons and Dragons universe, the, the sort of great cosmic wheel and multiverse of Dungeons and Dragons, and that was in second edition, where uh, it sort of started combining and making fuzzy math when it came to the gods and their connections. Then Planescape came out after Spelljammer sort of faded into obscurity, and that completely changed it because they the way that they put it in the books for Planescape is that it, some people believe it's the same, but if it's the same, Tiamat's just a watchdog for the second layer of hell, of the nine layers of hell. She, she just guards the entrance to Dis. And so if that's a god, that's a terrible job for a god just to be a watchdog. So maybe it's not Tachesis. Maybe it's just a shadow of Tachesis an aspect of Tachesis rather than the actual god herself. And they leave it open-ended in second edition so that you as the DM and players can decide whether it is or not. I will never connect the two. 
ever. I think they are completely separate because that's the version of Dragonlance that I was introduced to, that they were separate always. So regardless of however anyone else sort of frames it or whatever stories out there, my personal canon are they're separate. Um, you can have it however you'd like, you know, whether you want them connected or not. Hey, Patrick, how you doing? All right. I think that is it. Anthony, thanks for tuning in live. Good for you. Uh, good to see you. Oh, well, there you go. There you have. And I got a video coming out about it next week. So tune in on Tuesday and you'll get the nice little intro to it. Give you a little teaser there. All right. So Leaves from the Inland Last Home. I think it's a great little collection. It's a time capsule. If you believe in time travel, it is a time travel device to a version of Dragonlance that was young and fresh and new, still had that new car smell, didn't have any dunce, dents in the fender, made any songs or made any of the recipes. And finally, do you think that there is a benefit to source books over game materials? You can email me at info at dlsaga.com or leave a comment below. I'd like to take a moment and remind you to subscribe to this YouTube channel, ring the bell to get notified about upcoming videos, and click the like button. All of that goes to help other Dragonlance fans learn about this channel and its content. And this channel is all about celebrating the wonderful world of the Dragonlance saga. Thank you very much for joining in the celebration. So, until next time, my name is Adam. Slanjavar.